Hi, this is Matt Davis, founding director of the Alan Shoes International Writers' Center at George Mason University. We are a cultural diplomatic institution that celebrates the art of creative writing as a means of international dialogue, exchange, and understanding. And we are pleased to be hosting this episode of Mason Out Loud. Today, we have three wonderful Canadian writers who primarily work in poetry and translation. They are Aaron Moray, Brecken Hancock, and Aisha Sasha John. Aaron is a poet in English and Galician, as well as a translator from Galician, French, Spanish, and Portuguese into English. She's published numerous books of her own poetry and many more translations. And Aaron, I wanted to ask you a question about translation. You once said that, and I quote, translation is impossible. It's like skydiving without a parachute. You can't get up from it alive, but you do. Can you tell us a little bit more about that quote and your translation work and why it's like skydiving without a parachute? Well, I think because you go into um, translating a poem with your own preconceptions, some of them that you've evolved as a reader of the poem, but you don't realize you're reading the poem through your preconceptions. And then when you try to translate it, you uh, the poem teaches you how it wants to be translated, like you're not really in control anymore. You start to notice things about the poem that you didn't notice before and notice mm. things that are fitting and don't fit. And you start to notice because in one language the register of a certain word and the register of its most commonly used translation even is not, the two words are not the same. And so you end up, you watch the meaning of this poem that you're translating shift when you don't intend it to shift because mm. you've been able to leave the, the words of the original poem, you can't find really words that match. By then you've hit the ground. And you're good. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that, that's great. Um, thank you. And, and, and Brecken, Brecken Hancock is a poet, essayist, and book reviewer whose first book of poems, Broom Broom, was shortlisted for the Relit Award and won the Trillium Book Award for Poetry. And Brecken, I was hoping you could talk to us a little bit about structure and form of your poetry. It often shifts and changes from poem to poem, but many of them have an incredible rhythm to them. How do you work out what kind of poetic form to write in? How does rhyme sort of enter into that equation? When I'm working in poetry particularly, because I do work in prose as well, even when I'm working in prose, I have a certain sonic resonance that I'm looking for. But in poetry, it's absolutely essential. It's almost the first ingredient that has to fall into place. And many of the poems in Broom Broom, I would have a, like a sonic concept before I would even necessarily know what the poem was going to be about. So, for instance, I have a poem in the book called Evil Brecken, and the concept for the poem, before the poem ever took shape, was to make as many rhymes as I could with my name and to use the first few letters or the last few letters to make uh, sight rhymes as well and different kinds of assonance and alliteration. And so then you have to import that idea. Like it sounded good to me in my head <laughs> to make all these rhymes, but then what is the content of the poem going to be? And so uh, because the title of the poem, Evil Brecken, was self-reflexive and uh, like a search for identity. Then the concept of rhyming words with my own name seemed to kind of fit hmm. with, with like an egocentric approach to the subject matter. And so then the poem kind of evolved out of 
a marriage of those two things. How do you take a soundscape and kind of marry it in a intuitive way with with the subject, and and then both things are made, both things are boosted yeah. th- through through their through their marriage, through their alignment. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. Interesting. And finally, Aisha Sasha John is a poet and choreographer whose most recent collection, I Have to Live, was a finalist for the 2018 Griffin Poetry Prize. And I Have to Live, I love that title. It's a declaration but also a kind of cry of desperation. And so many of the poems in the collection seem to do with identity and and a sense of self. I mean, what, what did you mean by that title, I Have to Live? I mean, to be honest, I'm still discovering different sort of inflections of how it means. But I think that, and at some level, I, I can't, I can never really answer this question because I think if I could answer it really clearly, I wouldn't have written a book. <laughs> like, um, I can only answer it through example or like through, through illustration. And so the, in a way, the book is a collection of illustrations of that assertion. Yeah. But um, as an exercise, my editor asked me to go through the book and articulate how... Yeah, she asked me to... I I think she did. It's fuzzy. But I know I did the exercise. I can't remember what the conversation is that beget the exercise. But I went through the book and I articulated how each poem was an articulation of the title... I'm, there's a point where I taught um, composition at college, and you know the three elements of composition that we worked with were unity, development, and coherence. I think, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I was like unity, and that actually really helped my writing. You know, it's, I'm a good writer, so I never learned those sort of fundamentals, but I had to learn them to teach them. But it was helpful when I was thinking, okay, unity. Like, how are these poems an articulation of I had to, I have to live? So I went in. And I did that, and that was really interesting. Some poems left, because I'm like, they're actually not. And some poems, like, it was weird for me to, you know, they're written intuitively, I understood that they belong. It wasn't a question of their belonging at all, but it was really sort of strange to sort of like, to something that was made as water to make it air, Yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, so it was like an act of translation, actually. Like, I feel like... I do a lot of translating, like even, you know, writing a blurb or writing es- writing grants. Like I'm always, I'm translating water words or poetry into um, like air words. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's why I can't, I can't really answer the question because yeah. it's like, eh, I don't know. Like yeah. I have to, like I can't even remember. Like I, I have to live, I think. I choose like life first. It's like that's at least one of the inflections. Like life before art, yeah. Or life before that. I'm like I'm never not living, anyways. Yeah. Taking away the divisions between what constitutes, you know, when we're like in the lineup for food, that's no less life than this recorded conversation. It's no less life than when we're reading our poem. The poem that you labor over for years is no less, I mean, it, it's special, it has this labor to it, but is it less than something you say to someone at the bus stop that's, like, careful, and, you know, like, what is important or something? Right. 
Right. Yes. Like when I go there, I'm like, I start to like have the same sense of like confusion around it, or like. Well, that's that's why it's such a great title. Yeah. Because yeah. I, yeah. I I feel like there's so many different ways you can approach it. And, yeah. And I think you know, for all of you, you've all sort of have approached poetry in different ways, but you also approach other other forms of of writing or creativity. I mean, Brecken, you do prose, as you said. Aaron, you do poetry and translation. And actually, you do choreography. I mean, do you, how do these different forms that you work in, how do they impact your writing, but also how do they impact um, your, your other sort of creative outlets, whether it's choreography or, or prose or translation? Well, I don't, to me, it's, it's all, I mean, it's all writing. Translation is writing, too. You have to make yeah. creative choices every minute really see it at work when if you get a whole bunch of people to translate one poem yeah mm. see that have you have you different. have you done that before and yeah been, yeah no and I also like I've written a memoir and uh, regional history and several other things I just write what uh, what I feel like writing really and even my poetry books are quite well especially uh, last several decade I'd say are very mixed there's like but my last poetry book Capusta is a poem written in the form of a play hmm. with bad music in it and everything <laughs> uh, musical it's a musical so about the Holocaust so there's I'm always trying to see what happens I guess with language itself like what how does this work how is this how am I going to do this or how is this uh How's language going to make this piece happen? You know, like in writing a regional history and thinking of have people have no concept of what it's like to live, you know, in the woods and be on a trap line. They have no concept. So I, how can I evoke that for them? How can I have write down words so that the person who's reading this will be able to enter at least a little bit closer than they previously were to the experiences that I'm talking about in the book, you know. Mm. So there was various ways I did of trying to make that possible for people, both in the writing, but also in including different types of recipes, like different kinds of recipes for different types of bannock, for example. And people did write me and say, oh, I, I made this bannock, you know. What is bannock? <laughs> Bannock's a pan, pan bread. Okay. And it's uh, so. It's just I mean, working with with language to to see what what different things you can evoke that will somebody will be able to receive or help their to the, the, them to receive things in the direction that you're wanting to open to them. Yeah, yeah. What What about you, Breck? And how 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 did the different sort of forms that you we were talking earlier today, and you had said that oftentimes when you write prose, the poetry just sort of seeps in like yeah. a, like like water crashing through a dam. I mean, how, how do you sort of decide which form to write in and, and why? I the longer I go on in life as a writer, the more I just favor one way of communicating, hmm. which which seems to be something beyond like the easiest words that that are possible what i mean by that is i used to write you know book reviews or essays as i don't know sort of like 
a professional, uh, like I had a professional dexterity with that kind of thing. And it's just less interesting to me now to pump stuff out. I don't, right. I'm not really interested in writing as typing, which right. is yeah. kind of like what the way I see it sometimes. And mm. so right now I'm working on what could potentially be called a book of essays or could potentially be called a book of poems. I don't really know. But what I do know is that my lens into the book even when I want to call it prose, is poetic. And so, for instance, I would describe it as a book that exists at the level of the sentence. Even that is a poetic sentence, yeah. <laughs> even though it's describing prose. Like, mm. my, like, my grammatical structure is the sentence. But I don't think prose writers think that way because it seems to me that poets consider the vehicle you know yeah. that it's that it's it's beyond just communication it's also about the vessel yeah and so i wrote part of this essay and it just it was all dense you know the way i learned to write in university and all the sentences kind of like they were all on a page and filling up the whole page and whenever i read the essay i liked the individual sentences but i felt claustrophobic by the end of it and I showed it to some friends because I still, you know, talk to other writers about what I'm doing and, and get input and, and talk things through. And they just said, it needs more room. <laughs> it just needs more room. There's nothing wrong with the sentences or the ideas themselves. It's just like you can't crown them all together. So now, even though the essay exists at the level of the sentence, as I say, there's maybe only one sentence on a page. Right. Or there's maybe only mm. two sentences on a page. Mm. And there's space between sentences. And I just think that as a poet, I need to say things slowly. I think I need to say things carefully. And I think it's less about what I'm communicating and more about how. Yeah, mm. that's interesting. That's really interesting. Mm. Um, and what about you, Aisha? Because I feel like that, you know, the dance to, to writing, the dance to poetry, maybe the most dramatic in terms of, of, of different genre, but it, it, it seems, you know, somewhat natural the way that you've described it once before yeah I mean people seem to be really like confused about it but I think that's the way that our culture sees the body and the mind as um, being like separate I mean and they have been but I um, I think of myself as a listener a professional listener I, I make a living off of listening and so I listen and sense in my writing and I listen and sense with my body in dance, so that's some that's a way in which they're combined. I also think of myself as a person who is an energy worker, and, and the thing that I'm offering in performance is an energy bath, and that's the same thing that I'm offering in poetry. And you know, a long time I've sort of discovered the kinds of things that produce the kind of energy that constitutes awe or art. Mm. And but I mean, more sort of like. Structurally or informally, I, I make choreography and I make poetry. Or I've been a, a dance person called me a poet across forms, and I'm like, it's actually kind of the opposite. I kind of like, I mean, choreography is a type of writing, first of all, like graphy, it's in the word. Mm. But I think that when I learned to improvise as a dancer according to scores, so I, I work in choreography with structured improvisation. So I write the score or I like determine the task. This is all done in language. So it's like I play around or I'm thinking through something and then I, I'm like, oh, that's working. 
and then I'm like, how can I make this systematic so that its its success is like a function of the clarity of the score? And so then I write the score, and then I perform the score like as strictly as I can. And then if doing that doesn't work, then I tweak the score so that I don't have to like make any decisions outside of doing the score. I can just like focus on the score. And it's the exact same thing I do as a writer. I like create a structure um, that is the score, and I obey the score. And obeying the score produces a particular kind of writing. And so like yeah. you know the difference between my books is like I was working with a different score. Yeah. And um that's interesting. And then of course like once you work both as a dancer and as a poet, once you work with a kind of score for a while, certain things become second nature. So like the book before I have to live, I worked with a very strict score which gave the writing this real like sort of like tension. I have to live the score was way more loose because I kind of had developed some skills actually that I was able to like ride them out. I would say now the work that I've done since I have to live, it's sort of like going back to very strict. And so there's like sort of a, there's been this back and forth. Now I'm working on narrative, which is its own kind of score, just right. like storytelling, and which also keeps evolving into poetry. <laughs> um, I was like, I'm writing a novel, and then I keep like doing line breaks. Anyways, so yeah, for me, structure <laughs> is like a, a very important form is like, like, like you can't. I'm interested in freedom, and freedom isn't. I understand is like in relation to limits. Like you can't be free. Like what are your, like? There's always inherent limits to anything. So both uh, both allow me to think about structure and and freedom, sort of like differently. Right. Yeah. 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 Those are great answers. <laughs> Thank you each. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about. Uh, Canadian literature and, and, you know, from where I sit in Washington, D.C., United States, Canada is, it's a huge country with different people's languages, geographies. Um, for example, I once heard it said that Montreal has the most uh, trilingual speakers in the world, mm -hmm. at least per capita. Um, mm -hmm. So what, I mean, what? how do you each perceive Canadian literature at this moment? And like, your own space in it. I mean, I, can you even, is there even mm. a Canadian literature? Is that even too broad to, to say? I, I would say it's too broad to say. I think there's Canadian literatures or literatures in Canada. Mm. There's all kinds of different sets of inter intersecting concerns and concerns that aren't intersecting very much. There's also more than one language. There's because uh, there's literature in French, which exists completely independently of literature in English. And even the literature in Quebec exists quasi-independently of the French literature in Acadia as well. So those are two different historical communities where French is spoken. So there's, um, and there's a bits of, there's other historical, very small communities in Saskatchewan, Alberta, BC, Manitoba, I'm naming everywhere now. Oh. <laughs> Ontario too, that, that uh, are kind of in and out of different Canadian literatures. There's an institutional culture of things that they call Canadian literature that that historically has just uh, gone up in flames recently. Um, in fact, one of the more interesting books of collective uh, collection of essays is called uh, Refuse, Candlelit in Ruins. Huh, yeah, which doesn't mean Canadian literature is in ruins, but it means that the, and it doesn't mean that the uh, institutional Canadian literature is in ruins either, far be it the case. 
but that more people are seeing that maybe that that's not the kind of Canadian literature that they want to relate to. Hmm. Um, so there's there's a whole a whole slew I'd say of, of of concerns being dealt with communities being dealt with, and I think that a lot of what's coming up in in among writers and cat is a lot of as as uh, Aisha says professional listening is that people realizing that I don't always have to be speaking my poems, that I need to listen to what else is going on and to hear it, not through the optic of the institutional Canadian literature, but for what it is coming out of different uh, communities which have their own historical reasons for existing and their own historical reasons for protesting and their own uh, vision of where they need to go. So I don't know, There's, we're in a period of big change to me, I feel. I don't know how you two feel about it, but that I'm really welcoming. Funny because I really struggle with seeing myself as Canadian in the context of being a poet, although I am Canadian. I was born in Canada, so it's not um, it's not a dislocation with my nationality necessarily, but just that I don't see like the creative spirit as a nationalized kind of thing, even though for practical, economic, you know, concerns of course we exist in a particular you know within the confines of a particular country and nationality but I'm a public servant in my other life like I kind of have these two professional lives in my other life I'm a public servant for Canada and I feel that is so different from Mm. my my sort of allegiances as a poet Mm. which are to a microcosm of colleagues really and people I admire and friends and people I talk to and situations like this where I can have conversations uh, with people who I want to listen to. The whole Canlet establishment really feels foreign and outside and I think that's part of why there's been so much contention and argument around it is that in so many ways there's nothing to grab onto there. Like what is the Canlet establishment? I don't I don't see myself reflected in that, and and I, you know I would hazard to say that probably it would be difficult for even some of the people who are championing the establishment. I mean I don't know maybe they, maybe they do identify very strongly with it, but as a public servant for Canada, I go to work every day thinking about Canadians. I go to work every day thinking about c- citizens, what it means to be a citizen of the country, and. You know, that's not an easy task either, but it's it's one that has more clearly defined uh, scope in terms of national considerations. And so, as a poet, I, I don't know. I, I would like to think of it more as a fluid... Yeah. Yeah. I don't know, maybe yeah. more fluid conversation. Right. And that's something that can happen across borders and I think we're all you know translation and uh, ways of crossing genres I I think the most exciting things about writing are things that kind of break down those definitions yeah I would say that um, my it's changed but uh, it's changed somewhat but my relationship to Canlit has, has been like antagonistic like as a poet, you know, coming up in Toronto, 
people were so racist and so sexist and I really didn't respect the work that I was reading as well and I was mentored by people like Lisa Robertson for instance and reading people who were American and who were celebrated in Europe or in the US sort of more actually and because of the internet like I felt like I was the people who were making work that I felt like resonance with weren't necessarily in Canada and I, I have great affinity like I've been embraced by like New York and the Bay Area they really loved my second book and and I like read a lot in those places and it felt like because because the U.S. poetry scene is so much bigger sort of like like poets there's enough poets that like poets can kind of congregate whereas Canada is like smaller so you're like sitting alongside people whose work is like really quite different from yours and like in like so many ways I won't even go into that and so this sense of like what is poetry and like some of this sort of like small mindedness of what even constitutes poetry keeps getting sort of like it's changed I would say a lot but keeps getting sort of rehearsed in this like really idiotic way where Mm -hmm. it's like just like it's let people do what they're doing like why do you need there's a lot of policing in Canlet Mm. in Canadian poetry but what even constitutes poetry there's like these like non-stop sort of like policing arguments and it was like can't you just in a way that just felt to me really frustrating and like colonial like deeply deeply colonial and um yeah so I still feel like and I guess I mean I'm also a dancer and I have a relationship to a whole other Canadian artistic world so I can see this sort of um, different ways that things are articulated in different forms and it gives me this insight like I don't take things for certain things for granted as like normal or the way that things are because I'm like I know how differently this conversation is going on next door yeah actually yeah um, and my work has been celebrated like I've been I've done very well like I'm here but I do feel like an outsider perpetually I am black and a woman but I'm also a dancer like I feel like I'm like triply embodied in a in a in a in a poetry environment that is still highly and it's changing but like patriarchal like all the things you know so yeah it's, it's so yeah. interesting for me to hear the three of you talk because I mean you're all referring to Canlet which is such, like, such that that's like an interesting from my ear sort of insider baseball term is like a, mm. as an American like, can't, like mm, you know yeah. there's nothing like mm. that that we would say there's no like Amlet or like, of course <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. So, it's so interesting to hear but Canlet is also that official culture of uh, things the people who always get their books reviewed who are yeah. always kind of white you know Protestant a certain class yeah, uh, and there, I th- I feel like that people wanted to be like them, and that those concerns drove what people felt was valuable for a long time. And I think part of it, like those people, always got their books reviewed. They were always they they wrote a book. They you know their books were always reviewed. They 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 were always present at every festival. They were always quoted. They were always interviewed. Um, the the a same. There was a kind of a sameness to it all, Is there and I think that still exists. But I don't. I think that the richness is happening elsewhere, and that the real connections are, are being built elsewhere. Yeah. And there's, I think there's also like, like I think we're all part of Canlet, and like thinking about your work, Aaron, and like coming up, and you know realizing the sort of like 
that can like also includes people like you and Lisa and Gail Scott mm-hmm. and Dion and like there's like mm-hmm. like yeah. that's like I, like I I think I just I want to like I guess I want to say that because I want to say that like like the the work like to the people coming up like um, like I think of you in a good way obviously as can lit one of the things I'm grateful for you know like yeah. truly like truly and so there's um, I think what that word means is shifts you know and like I think that at this point we're can lit as well and that's oh, yeah. real you know <laughs> so there's yeah yeah. There's been a way of claiming can lit, I think, that's very patriarchal and very white. I think that certain there's a certain cohort of people who've appropriated that term. And so that's kind of why I think some of us feel left out of it, even though we are in it. Yeah. And um, yeah, Aaron Moray, Lise Robertson, um, women poets who, uh, Dion Brand, who we who mentored us and who we look have looked up to and now exist alongside are of course part of Canlit. But it just like it's deeply, been deeply like, but like, yeah, yeah. 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 So but there's a resistant like it's it's almost like we have to offer resistance to that institutional term because it's been co- like corrupted almost. Yeah. But it's I mean there's also been like a lot of like um like I don't I don't know if you've heard about Concordia and what happened there? I'm not. So, like, there's been a lot of uh, sexual... What is Concordia? Is it, Concordia is it... a university in Montreal. With a creative, with a long-standing creative writing Yeah, yeah, okay. Long, okay. Very, like, established, long-standing creative writing program where not just Concordia, also UBC, like, CanLit has been associated with, like, like um, I, I, I'm, like, stumbling for words because I'm talking about this, but, like, with... Um, uh, p- men being uh, uh, called out for their sexual assault, and so there's been like you know when Jupiter was in Scorpio, all of the all of the dogs got sort of like rounded up, and so Can Lit <laughs> got evoked to talk about um, like like and Can Lit and the Me Too movement were and so I mean but we all knew that this was happening and we yeah. all had our own stories and. And so Ken Lit it came out all came out in the open instead yeah, of Yeah, and it was always in the open, but it finally, you know, and there was there's a situation. Well, finally it wasn't acceptable. I could, and a few yeah. of them got fired finally. Some yeah, people it was always got in the fired. open, but nobody got fired. One one of the people who got fired sued the people. Like I, like it's like it's, it's it's still going on. It's like ongoing. Hmm. And and um yeah, like just in the Concordia situation, for instance, one of the one of the people who um uh, uh, I guess I have to say alleged, even though that feels weird to say. Um, but so someone who's been who was quite vocal about her experiences um, of violation at Concordia had been speaking about it ongoingly. A woman, um, then a man, who was in the program and pals with those guys, and pals with those guys, writes an expose like saying, yeah, I saw it and I didn't do anything. And then his expose gets all this exposure. So it's like, yeah. this this is the kind of gender politic that we're talking about, where like 
who's being listened to. Yeah. Like, so that's why I won't, like, I, I feel like it's necessary to give that context because we're, like, talking about can lid and, like, da-da-da-da, but that's, like, it's not the elephant in the room, but that's, like, a big part of the conversation and what the conversation has been. And that's just, like, even one part, I would say. Right. It's not, it's definitely not, um, yeah, yeah. It's definitely just one part. It's just one part. It's, yeah. it's not, I mean, it's in. It almost seems like I, I, there may be. I don't know, but it, is there like an organization called Canlit? Because the way that like, <laughs> I just, it feels like in the way that like that's been only. Famous but it used to be. It, it, came, to be, it yeah. came to be as a term for the, the kind of things that were put together into Canadian literature courses in universities, which only started in the seventies, and um, so certain people were taught in those courses, and then we would people would refer to those courses as the Canlit courses. Huh. They first were, there was no, like, in the, you know, American literature department, there was no Canadian literature department. They're in the, they're part of the English department, and originally Canadian literature was part of, um, it was part of post-colonial writing, even in Canada. It's like, how can your own country's literature, which is a colonial literature, be part of post-colonial writing? And I mean, my first person who I didn't go very far to university, but who taught in university at University of Calgary was a he was a specialist in in Caribbean literature. He's from uh, Grenada, I think originally, Victor Ramraj, and um, he it was him who held because there was no courses in Canadian literature like in 1972 at that university. We various people who were interested, including me, wasn't even registered on the campus, would go and sit around in his office and like read Margaret Atwood's survival and all talk about it and have very interesting not hagiographic you know <laughs> conversations about these books as well like uh, because he had that perspective from the Caribbean you know of uh, be, having been under British rule and, and just the kind of how literatures evolve and so we sat in this you know crowded in an office half the size of this room there'd be like you know a bunch of people talking about with him about these books because there was no course yeah and so that's that's it's interesting. That's where it started. But from there, it kind of became institutionalized. This is Canlet. They would be these anthologies, and and maybe I I very soon. But like I'm you know a white woman, and I speak incomplete sentences. And so and my mom always used to say, if you wear clean clothes, people will think you have a bachelor's degree. <laughs> if you wear clean clothes and speak in full sentences, people will think you have a master's. <laughs> and so I thought, oh good, I got a cheap education. I can do it. But but the. Like it was always like Pierre Burton, Robertson Davies, Margaret Lawrence, uh, Margaret Atwood was actually one of the more young younger ones. But there was uh, it was it was basically this this standard kind of hierarchy, and whatever else was going on in the in the literature of the country wasn't wasn't part of the literature. Anyways, it it is now, and these things that are happening in these creative writing schools with these predatory male profs. There's lots of profs and hopefully they'll hire a few that aren't, and there are many that aren't predatory, but in these predatory days that, that we are hoping are recently came to a close with Concordia and the scandals at UBC, there's, there's uh, I guess just our institutional history has recently been disrupted with some different kinds of thinking is all. Yeah. That's 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 super interesting. Did no, I wanted to say like for me personally though, like as a black person, I was only Canadian when I went to the states. Or remember when I was in Morocco, I was like, oh, Canada girl, Canada girl, and yeah. I was Canadian. I was like, oh, you have a Canadian accent. In in Canada, I'm not. I'm black. 
like in can, like so that's why I'm like uh, can lit my, like yeah. my antagonism was like it's like I don't feel like I'm born I'm like I'm like pan Canadian I'm like Toronto <coughs> Montreal Vancouver um, but like my Canadian and, and like you know like I don't like I don't feel uh, any kind of like I'm highly critical of Canada obviously it's an apartheid state like I my I have like great anti- like I'm you know so my politics locate can- Canada's a problem for me a huge problem for me and and yet I understand that like I'm able to uh, like feed myself because I get grants from the Canadian art Canadian art councils like you right. know like I get to continue to like so like it's it's not like I'm also really grateful about and I and I have health care like I'm so grateful for these things and I understand that like if I were American say like my parents are from the Caribbean if they like I have cousins in the in America and like I don't know if how I would have been possible <laughs> in I don't know if I could be a dancing poet or a singing dancer is probably more accurate in in America but yeah. I can do that in Canada yeah so like there's a way in which for me it's like like and, and at this point I'm like just sort of like with everything else I'm just happy to like I'm fine with just putting the things down and they seemingly contradict but it's reality so it, like what does a contradiction mean in reality but all the things sort of like sit there yeah you know yeah. But so I, like, I think it's really important that you bring things you're, you're you know one of the people that brings that that antagonism is really important to the rest of us too because we need that culture to change we want that culture to change and grow and it won't without unless unless somebody feels it something biting them and that they're going to scratch it you know right it won't it won't change and yet you're somebody like so often the 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 acceptable format in the past was you know somebody becomes known in Canlit and then you become kind of like oh yes I'm part of Canlit which which you never have and I know you won't and it, that you're you you create trouble or make visible the trouble that is there in those waters and that that we need to pay attention to we need to I mean that's the only way that that things are going to open up and be different in the and in the past at least to me like thank you I, you know I'm, I'm happy that you're that you're visible speaking you're here today you know like you're to me that's really important because say even whatever 20 30 years ago like there'd be like I learned a lot from Claire Harris she taught me in grade seven and eight when she first came to Trinidad she taught in my school we had this teacher and I, I just thought wow you know like I, I just felt so lucky she paid attention to us rotten little very badly behaved kids poor kids you know and she she paid out of her own salary to subscribe us to these children's magazines so we had stuff in the classroom and stuff like that and I, I mean I, I learned um, so she wasn't even known as a poet then but I learned so much from her and then I grow up and see and then I, I grew up seeing in official culture no black people existed Claire Harris wasn't you know, I'm a, what about Claire Harris? She's this poet, like, she comes from my hometown. I know she's a poet. Just, like, people were, you know, black people were kind of, like, erased from the culture. But they were there all the time. People were there all the time doing things. Yeah. Why, like, Can one I just the, say something in response to that? Like, 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 mm-hmm. it's just that it's so painful. Like, it's so, like, it's so much work. It's so much it labor. Is. And why should you and, have to do it? <laughs> and not only that, but, like, I mean... 
no matter who we are, we all make choices around integrity, and we have to. And as artists, we're continually making choices. Some yes, of the choices absolutely. are micro, saying no to this, and then there's money. Like we're always making choices, but part of it for me, I mean, I'm sensitive. Like that's how, like I need like I. That's why I'm a poet. <laughs> that's why I'm really sensitive. <laughs> that's the other way of putting it. But part of it is that no matter, I mean, and that was really intense. Like I got my book got nominated for this really big big money prize and it's like no and I mean I knew this before but no matter where I go like people will find a way to remind me that to or to put me in my place like it, like so there's no like there's no like accomplishment that won't be where I won't receive racism and sexism like 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 I know that and, uh-huh. and, and so I don't have any like and so I mean I experienced that a long time ago so I never had any like, that's part of my sort of dismantling of authority. I mean, it's whatever. It's longer than that. But it's like, there's no, like, I, I don't, like, how can I, how can I give you authority if you're not even smart enough to recognize me? Like, you're yeah. dumb then. Yeah. Like, you're, like you, it shows that you're prejudiced. Like, it shows that yeah. you're, like, stupid. Like, you're, like, your fear or your, or your whatever it is is like has like rendered you like a not a thinker so how can i a thinker respect you as a thinker yeah. proving yourself to be like a weak thinker yeah. so like on that level it's like well actually like bot like like I, I can no longer so that means that like yeah just to say that like the the having integrity and i keep like, and I understand, like, I mean, I've talked to mentors about this. I understand that it's, like, nonstop. I think at some point I thought, like, oh, once once you reach a certain level, you, then you can coast. <sighs> then people will respect you. And it's like, uh, actually, you'll just get disrespected in subtler ways. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> They'll just be more crafty mm. <laughs> about the doublespeak. Mm. You know, like, it just sort of changes form. And then you also have to, like... Be, like you like I don't know you have to think about how you want to deal with that yeah you know yeah yeah That's so interesting yeah well I think we might leave it there and um, I want to thank you all for joining me in this podcast um, this was fantastic and um, good luck with the rest of your time here in the DC area and safe travels back to Canada and we will be looking out for your future works thank you so much thank you thank, thank you, you.